are starting a brand new series this morning, a series that I am excited about, a series that I believe has some of the most potential to really change our world. It's something that I believe that maybe as followers of Christ, we've began to overlook. One of the things that really impacted me when I got to go to every site during I Love My Town and try to encourage people, I didn't get to get to every site because some of you were finished before I got there, but it was just incredible to see the generations that were involved. You had people from the boomer generation all the way down to Generation Alpha involved in, in loving on each other. And we've said this before, that this isn't just this wasn't just a, a culture thing for Discover. This was a culture thing for our town. And our town comes to expect it and see it. And it was interesting to see on, on different things when people go out and take pictures of what we're doing that aren't necessarily part of it, but are encouraged by it and share it. When they tell the story of what they saw, they almost always mention and in, in, in every generation was present. And every age was there making a difference and spreading mulch. And it was just Really cool to see that we're a generational church and, and we're a generational family. When it comes to your family, whether it's a family you've chosen or a family that you were born into or the family of Christ, what is the purpose of a family? Is the purpose of a family to be, to be perfect? Is the purpose of a family to follow all the right rules? Is the purpose of a family to be happy? What if the purpose of what God is doing in us and through us as a family is so much greater than you could ever imagine. Where that purpose connects us to the past and future generations. God's plan is to bring his kingdom to this earth, bring his garden to this town. And I believe that he's going to do that through his people. When we work with God, not just for God, but when we work with God, we're going to find a life that is full, a life that is meaningful. We're going to discover that our lives have impacted generations. And if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Deuteronomy 6 this morning, kind of in the beginning of your Bible there. That's where the majority of our scripture is coming from this morning, a real big chunk. And we're going to be kind of using this as we progress through this series the next couple of weeks. And it says in, in Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 4, God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and shall, they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord... Your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you off the face of the earth. Those are some strong words. 
that's happening right there. What God is saying, God says that our goals, our goal that he has given us is to hand what we know, what we've seen, what we've experienced, what God has done in our midst, how God's love has changed us, hand this off to the next generation. He says, teach these things to your children. And at the same time, we need to recognize that we are living in the blessings handed to us by the generation that came ahead of us. I was telling this to my children this week. I was like, we're sitting in a house we did not build. But right now we're sitting in a church that we did not build. This was an antique mall. We didn't build this. I understand that I pastor a church that I did not plant. I wasn't the guy that started this in his home, that moved it to his school and had to be a portable church. I'm standing in somebody else's blessing. And we all are that. I we didn't plant those gardens. We didn't dig those wells. When we stand in the shade of those trees, somebody else planted those trees. We need to honor the generation that have come before us because we are reaping their fruit. And today I got three points that I want to be sure that we catch this series that I'm going to be kind of setting this up as we take this journey together. Number one is that our God is a generational God. And we see that in verse 10 of what we just read in Deuteronomy, but also in Exodus 3, verse 15. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. All generations are going to worship our God. You see, you, you, when you see God for who he is, no matter what generation that you're a part of, no matter how young or how old you are, no matter what ethnicity you're a part of, no matter what country you've come from, no matter what tribe you call yours, when you see God for who he is, you will worship him because he is worthy of the worship of every generation. And because our God is a generational God, our God is creating a generational people. And I love that. When you look around this room today, every generation that is present on earth is in this room. You've got Generation Alpha on the other side of that wall. You've got Gen Zers in here. You've got all generations that is present in this room right now. And that is God's heart. God says in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Who is us at the beginning of the Bible? Who is our image? That is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We have a triune God. And in that perfect community, that is God, there is generations. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And then we read in Isaiah 60, verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people's. But the Lord will arise among you and his glory will be seen upon you. We are to be a reflection of the image of God, a reflection of the glory of God. And if God is a forgiving God, then guess what? We need to be a forgiving people. And if God is a loving God, then we need to be a loving people. And if our God pursues people who are even broken, pursues people who are at their worst and loves them, then we need to be a people who pursue people. And if the God of the Bible is a generational God, then we need to understand there is a part of bearing God's image that I cannot do without the generation behind me, without the generation ahead of me. That I need your generation and you need my generation if we're going to display the goodness of God. 
You don't have to take my word for it. It's written all over Scripture. The very last verse of the Old Testament, the very last book is Malachi. The very last word is destruction, just so you know. But the very last verse of the Old Testament in Malachi 4, verse 6, it says, And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. What God's going to do among us is he's going to turn one generation to the heart of the other. He's going to turn one younger generation to the heart of the older and the heart of the older generation to the heart of the younger. And in that, we will find peace. And in that, we will find the garden in our town. But if we don't do that, there's just strife between generations. It will lead to our destruction. That's what God's going to do. He's going to turn every heart to another heart's generation. What I'm trying to get you to do through this series is to be a people that honor the generation that came ahead of you and fuel the generation that is coming up behind us. We desperately need to be this kind of people. And this series is inviting you to be very intentional with every generation. And this whole idea is counterintuitive to our world today. Our world today loves to belittle different generations. I'm a millennial, and I grew up hearing how entitled and lazy we are. I found this on the cover of Time magazine. It's great. It made me feel really good. Uh, the me, me, me generation, millennials are very, are, are lazy, entitled narcissists. Thanks. That feels great. That's what we call millennials. Do you know what we call Gen Z right now? We call them lazy and entitled. I found the cover of this book. It says, it says uh, how to reach the minds and hearts of Generation Z, uh, the, the entitled generation. Do you know who's called me this generation, my millennial generation, entitled and lazy? What generation called me that? Some of you are whispering it because you're afraid to say it louder. Like you're loud all throughout the whole thing, but it was the boomers who called the millennials lazy and entitled. Do you remember what they called the boomers? Anybody remember? The hippies, the lazy hippies. They were lazy and entitled. In fact, the mantra of their generation was turn on, tune in, and just drop out, man. That was the mantra of their generation, and that was given to them by the generation that came ahead of them. So as, as, as the world, the spirit of this world, I'm not telling you that to make you feel bad. I'm just pointing out that the spirit of this world has been counterintuitive to what God is saying that we are called to do. Ephesians 2 says that the spirit uh, this is the spirit of Satan himself. This, this is the spirit of the air, the power of the air. We were born into it. And by nature, we are children of wrath. And that's what it causes us to do. But when you give your life to Jesus, he puts his heart in you. He renews your mind. He begins to change you and you begin to have a burden to honor and to fuel. You begin to have that kind of burden to stop dividing the generations around you. And at some point in your life, you're going to stop just being focused on your personal walk, but started honoring the generation ahead of you and fueling the generation behind you. So let's look at what these generations kind of break down into. So 
the greatest generation was born in 1901 to 1927. Some, some people call that the GI generation because of the wars they experienced. There was a silent generation born from 1928 to 1945. There was the baby boomers, you know who you are, from 1946 to 1964. Then there was Gen X from 1965 to 1980. Then the millennials were born 1981 to 1995. Generation Z was born 1996 to 2009, and Generation Alpha was born, born in 2010 to 2025. There's a lot of information there. Are you guys laughing about the iPad kids thing? Calm down. Some people call them the I generation. Gen Z, they actually, because it's a play on boomers, they actually call the Zoomers, which is kind of fun. But when we look at this, when you look at these different generations, you have to be very intentional. And the generations that we're going to be intentional about today is Gen A and Gen Z. We're going to be very intentional about Generation Alpha and Generation Z. And I have to apologize, and I'm going to have to do this every week for the Gen Zers in this room, because I'm going to be talking about you as if you're not in the room. I'm going to be talking about you and not to you, and that's extremely rude. And I apologize. And I also want to let you know that the things that I talk about your generation aren't necessarily true for you. These aren't labels or boxes I'm trying to get you to fit in or everybody else to fit in. There's exceptions to everything. And you might be the exception to these descriptions and these realities. You might be totally different. And I know that and I see that and I respect that. So we're just going to just kind of go through this. That being said, Gen Zers today are around 14 to 29 years old. If you're 14 to 29 years old, you would be considered a Gen Zer. And there are 68 million Gen Zers in the U.S. Generation Alpha is anybody from 0 to 13 years old, and they're the children of millennials. They're most likely the, the second sibling to maybe a Gen Zer. Generation Alpha, what you need to know about them is that there are more than 2.5 million being born globally every week. And when their generation comes to an end in 2025 and another generation begins, they will number almost 2 billion generation alphas. That makes them the largest generation in the history of the world. 2 billion generation alpha. And I believe that it will be this generation, generation Z and generation alpha, that will usher in the kingdom of God. I believe it will be them with the connectedness they have, with the life experience and the brokenness they've already experienced, I believe that God is doing a work in them to usher in the kingdom of God. And if you believe that with me, if you're like, yes and amen, my question to you is, how much of your time are you spending loving them, serving them, equipping them, discipling them, sharing a meal with them, encouraging them, because we need to know them. Here's what experts are saying about Generation Z. They're saying that they're very resourceful, independent learners. I can tell you that my kids rarely come to me with a question for their homework because they know where to find the answer. That happened during COVID. We have a little Google display in our kitchen and they just go, okay, Google. And then they ask Google the question and Google gives them like a whole YouTube video with a guy on a whiteboard explaining the answer to them. They think I'm the dumbest person in the world because they are resourceful, independent learners. They are extremely diverse and they value diversity. They will be the most racially and and ethnically diverse generation in the history of the United States. They place a huge priority on their well-being and mental health in the workplace. What's also interesting about them is they are fiscally conservative. 
They're very good at investing. They're very good with their income. And experts are saying that Generation Z, individuals who are between the ages of 18 and 25, prove to be more financially sophisticated than any other previous generation. That is who they are. And I know that about my kids. Logan, who turns 14 at the end of this month, bugs me nearly every day to set him up with an investing account somewhere. I'm like, Logan, you have to be 18 years old before you can have one of those accounts. He's like, who cares? You do it under your name. I'll give you the money. I'll tell you where to invest. I'm like, you're 14. What do you know? But they're they're so, they want to invest. They want to be wise with their money. Gen Z has a voice and they are comfortable expressing their opinions. Another very interesting thing about Gen Z is they are now the most entrepreneurial generation ever, ever. 62% of Gen Zers have indicated that either own a business or plan to own a business, 62% of them. They have a very strong work ethic. Some people come to me and complain to me how many teenagers are flooding the gym. They're like, I can't get to my part because there's so many teenagers there. And I guess in my mind, I'm like, where would you rather them be? But that's where they want to be. They have that ethic. They have that strong drive. My kids are asking me for a gym membership. I've never had any, but I didn't ask my parents for a gym membership. But they got a very, very strong work ethic. A few weeks ago when I shared that I hadn't worked out in six weeks because I had a hernia surgery, the ones that were bugging me in the lobby about it were teenagers saying, bro, we got to get you back in the gym. They understand a work ethic. No doubt, there is no doubt in my mind that they are going to change the world, but they have some obstacles to overcome. Gen Zers are also not as independent as previous generations. They're not driven by independence. Twelfth graders in 2015 were going out less than eighth graders in 2009. They just don't leave the home. Today's teens are also less likely to date Only 56% of high school seniors have been on a date. When it comes to boomers and Gen X, it was 86% had been on a date. They just don't see the reason to do that. But thankfully, the teen birth rate has hit an all-time low. In 2016, it was down 67% since its peak in 1991. It's a big deal. It's a big thing. Nearly all Boomer High School students had their driver's license when they began their senior year. And and experts are saying now that more than one out of four teens today don't have a driver's license when they graduate high school. It's a big, big difference. And some of that is because they recognize that independence isn't free. In the 1970s, 77% of high school seniors also had a part-time job. By the mid-2010s, only 55% of 8th graders who would work for pay. And parenting absolutely has a huge role in this. We live in an information economy, an economy that says your education is more important than your work history. So rather than send my kids off to gain some work experience and work history, I'd rather keep them at home and have them study and, be, and, and get ready for college rather than have them get a part-time job. And you might think it's because maybe Gen Z or, or has so much homework, but in the 2010s, Gen Z actually spends less time on homework than Gen X ever did in the early 90s. The number of teens who get together with their friends in person on a regular basis has dropped 40% from the year 2000 to the year 2015. 
It was nearly split in half. How many teens get face-to-face with their friends? And it's been, a, it's been declining especially fast recently. Teens, in turn, seem to be content being homebodies. Not because they're so studious or because they don't care. It's because their social lives are lived on their phones. They don't need to leave the house to spend time with someone. And what's most important for you to know is that their worldview is shaped more by their phones than their friends. There was a time where you were really careful about who your kid was spending time with. But you need to understand they are shaped more by their phones than their friends. When I was growing up, there was something called peer pressure. And I wanted to be exactly like the people I was hanging out with. But now the phone is shaping their worldview. And more importantly, it's shaping the way they view themselves. Social social interactions are primarily done through their phone. Social interactions more through their phone than they are in school. More through their phone than at work or at church. That's where all their social interactions are happening. They're comfortable online more than they are comfortable partying. So there are safer generations, more safe than any other generation has ever been before them, but they're on the brink of a mental health crisis. In 2012, when it came to polling teens, there was a huge spike in depression and loneliness. And they're trying to figure out where that spike had come from. And they began to study things like, is it from the economy? But the economy was great in 2012. By 2010, the Great Recession was over. In 2011, the, the unemployment rate began to greatly decline. So what was going on in 2012? And so the only thing that they could figure out was that, that teens are spending more time on their phones in 2012 than any other year before that. And it was leading them to depression. It was leading them to loneliness. And you need to know that today is Suicide Prevention Day, National Suicide Prevention Day, which is the number two cause of death for Gen Zers. And they discovered that by 2012, what was happening was that this huge spike was going on before was going on with phone use before this began. And so they discovered, the American Psychological Association discovered that social media moved from being optional to mandatory among teens in 2010. Pew's data research, Pew Center, uh, their research showed that a percentage of Americans owning smartphones crossed, teens owning smartphones crossed 50%, over 50% in 2012. And that was the biggest difference. 50% of teens had a smartphone in 2012. By 2016, 80% of teenagers had a phone. In the year 2018, 95% of teenagers had a phone and some kind of social media presence. And they found that young people who spent more time on social media were less happy and more depressed. And you might be thinking, well, you know, that's a good thing for me because I'm not going to let my kid have a phone until they're 25 and moved out of the house. Then they can have a phone and everything is going to be great. But this is probably the hardest truth for you to hear. Because it's social media, they are affected by social media, whether they have a phone or not. Kids who don't have a phone feel left out. They feel unconnected. They feel lonely and depressed. And once you give them a phone, they're able to see the pictures of what their friends are doing without them. And they feel left out, they feel unconnected, and they feel lonely and depressed. The adults in this room have ever taken a fast from social media, you know it affects you whether you are on it or not. 
It's the world that we live in. And so teens who don't have phones, it's the same thing that's going on. Comparison begins to steal their joy. And to complicate things, they are coming of age in a post-Christian world. There was a time in the West that Christianity was considered the basis of our ethics and our morality. That, that we understood that the Bible was kind of this, this north, this, this point on a compass that we could go to. It was absolute truth. It was just assumed that everybody knew who Jesus was, that everybody knew what sin was, that everybody knew what salvation was, that everybody knew what the Bible was, and they had heard of church before. It was just assumed. Now in the Western world, they largely reject the authority of the Bible, the authority of Christianity, and they do not consider it the basis of ethics or culture. You can literally bump into people, and this has happened before, bump into people in our town, and I know it seems strange, who have never been to church and never knew anybody that had been to church, never read a scripture before, heard a scripture read to them before, have very little knowledge of who Jesus is other than his name. And while the post-Christian world is slowly making its way to Western North Carolina, what you need to understand is that this is where Gen Z already operates today because of social media. They are already in a post-Christian world. And a post-Christian world is telling them that the pursuit of happiness, that pleasure comes from finding yourself, finding your place, finding your identity, following your heart, and choosing your label. Label yourself, and that is where all these things are found. And interesting, it's left them lonely, depressed, and broken. And we need to be able to walk alongside them and pray for them and set an example for them. And the best way that we can do that for this generation, what Gen Z needs to know, is the goodness of the gospel identity. They need to know the goodness of the gospel identity. They're being told all over social media that they're being defined by what they do, how attractive they are, how popular they are, what social groups they belong to, how enviable they are because of their friends and the stuff they do and how successful they are. And the gospel truth, not just the gospel truth, but the real world truth that when I'm interacting with that generation, they've discovered so early, which is why I feel like they're going to be used for incredible things is is if that's where you place your identity you will actually never be happy all you're going to want is more you'll never have enough money you'll never have enough friends and you'll never be popular enough you'll not you'll not only be an endless pursuit of something you'll never reach but if you ever fail if a popular person breaks up with you if you're not invited to that party where all your friends went if if there's a rumor that started about you if that happens the biggest question is Who will you become? Because it's ruined for you now. Have you lost your identity because you are not what you wanted to be? The gospel says no matter what you do, no matter who you become, that you can be acceptable to God, valuable and deeply loved by God because of what Jesus has done for you. And my question for those of us who are ahead of Generation Z, fueling them and leaving an example for them is are we living this way? Are we living in the goodness of our gospel identity? Or are we making it seem unappealing? Or are we making it seem like it's made no difference in us at all? Are we making it seem like we're still trapped in labels just as much as they are? We're still in a box. We still have no hope. And it's as if Christ has made no difference to us. What does a successful life look like? When you're successful, is that you have money in the bank? Is that you have degrees? 
Is it that you're, you're a, a husband and wife with 2.5 kids? This is what David writes in Psalm 71, 17. He says, oh God, from my youth you have taught me and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Success is succession. That's what success is. When we can pass the goodness of the gospel to the next generation, the thing we as a church need to embrace is that success is found in our ability to hand the gospel, the blessing of God, to proclaim the goodness of his might to the next generation. And make no mistake, if we do not hand off our faith to the next generation, we have failed. So how does God create a generational people? The primary way that God creates a generational church is through parents. God uses fathers and mothers to teach and disciple the next generation. But for those of us who are in the peripheral, who Gen Z is going to be walking side by side, what are we leaving for them? Are we showing them that the gospel offers us a better identity than what the world offers? And a world that loves labels and is adding new labels every day. Are we showing Gen Z the freedom of living in the gospel or are we living under oppressive labels? And to set this all up, I have to ask you this question, who has the right to label someone or something? Who has that right? There's two answers. The first one is the creator. Nike gets to call their shoes Nikes because they created them. They can call them whatever they want. And the buyer. So not just the creator, the buyer. They get to call anything, like if I get a new softball glove, which I'll never play softball ever again, but if I get a new softball glove, I'm going to write my name in it. And Toy Story, when Andy has his favorite toy, Woody, he writes his name on the bottom of it. If you buy it, you get to label it. You get to name it. You get to do those things. So the only person who has the right to name something is the creator and the buyer. And this next question If you get this question right, it changes everything. It makes all things new. It doesn't matter if you're 12. It doesn't matter if you're 92. It doesn't matter if you grew up in the United States or if you grew up in Zimbabwe. If you get the answer to this question right, it changes everything. And the question is, who or what has the right to label you? What or who has the right to label you? If the creator and the buyer have the right to label you, then who or what has the right to label or mark you? Labels are so incredibly important because once somebody gives us a label and we accept it, it will totally control how we think or what we do. When you define yourself inaccurately, you'll always find yourself doing things you didn't want to do to begin with. And here's what I know about you. You have labels. Some of them you put on yourself and some of them someone else has put on you. And what labels do, they have so much power because they lock you in and they lock God out. There are some labels in my generation, the generations that are coming ahead of Gen Z that you are wearing today and it breaks my heart when I see you wearing that label and it doesn't leave them a good example. Some of the labels in this room is the label divorced. You wear that label, you talk about it often and when this happens, whether it's your fault or not, No matter what, when this happens, you accept this label and you allow yourself to date a pathetic loser. And I'm going to define pathetic loser. That's someone who doesn't treat you right, treats you like dirt, who doesn't value you or treasure you. And why do you do that? You do that because you feel like you're damaged goods. 
You do that because you feel like you're broken, and brokenness is not unrighteousness. And by his grace, it will not destroy you, but it will make you stronger. God says in Isaiah 42, 3, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and coastlands wait for his law. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 2, 9, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You are not pathetic. You are not alone. You deserve to be loved. And you are loved deeply by a God who created you. He will carry you and he will keep you. Some of you, whether you're part of Gen Z or another generation, the label you wear on yourself is that you are the partier. And when somebody calls you a partier, they mean you're the one in the group who makes the bad decisions. Or you're the one that sleeps around. You say, this is who I am because it's what people say about me. So I'm going to get blackout drunk. I'm going to try that drug because that's what people say who I am. I'll sleep with this person because people say that about me already. Paul writes, in Ephesians 5.12, he says, For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. You are the light of Christ. You are not a partier. You are the person that can bring life and light into whatever room. Another one that I hear often is victim, and you cannot let that go. Something has happened to you, and you are not responsible for what happened to you, but you are responsible for how you recover from that. And some of us were so afraid to let go of the label victim because we don't know who we are without it. It's defined who we are. Paul writes in Romans 8.35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Instead of saying, I'm a victim, say, I'm a conqueror. And Gen Z wants to see that you've got that power and strength from Jesus Christ, and let them receive that. Some of you, the label you are wearing this morning is you are overwhelmed. I love that label because you know what you can do when you have that label? You can do anything you want. I set your car on fire. I'm sorry because I was overwhelmed. I drank too much because I was overwhelmed. I slept with them because I was overwhelmed. I withdrawed all the money from my bank account, went to Hawaii without being being able to afford to come back home. So now I got to start a GoFundMe on Facebook because I was overwhelmed. You can blame anything on it. I didn't make it to your basketball game because I was overwhelmed. I forgot about our anniversary because I was overwhelmed. I lost my job because I was overwhelmed. And I'm not saying it's not legit. I'm just saying if we receive and accept that label, we will allow it to control us. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, learn from me. My promise to you is rest. 
And he is gentle and humble at heart, and that does not describe the world that we were coming out of and going into. The world will lure you into a system that makes you think this is the way that you survive, and instead we burn out and the world condemns us. Jesus is not like that. Again, as promised is rest. And whatever label you have, connect yourself to Jesus. Jesus will walk with us as we walk with him, and he will change our perspective. And with all of that in mind, I, w- I want you to, to leave here, to walk out with this thought today, and that is the one who created you and bought you is the only one who has the right to label you. And that is not your friends. That is not some Instagrammer. That is Christ and Christ alone. You were created, it says in Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So he created us. He gets to label us. Not only did he create us, he paid for us and bought us. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price to glorify God in your body. Christ is the only one who should get to label us. And if you are a Christ follower in this room today, this is how your creator and purchaser has labeled you. And if you're not a Christian, this can be true about you before you leave today. And this is what I believe that God wants to say over Generation Z. What God wants to say over Generation Z is that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. That is who you are. That is a label that God has given you. David writes in Psalm 139, 14, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. A label that God wants to put on Generation Z is that you are accepted. You are accepted. It says in Romans 5, 8, but God knows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if we, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. This is better than LeBron James picking you for his basketball team. This is the creator of the universe saying, I have accepted you. And most of the time to be accepted, you have to be someone you're not. He comes to us as we are and accepted us and we are made new. He accepts us but loves us too much to leave us that way. And he doesn't accept us because we're so great, but because of the blood of Christ on the cross. You are the daughter. You are the son of a king and you are welcome to his table. The last label that God wants to read over you, especially Generation Z, is that you are made new. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has gone away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is Christ God, that is in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, but entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors, the highest ranking officials from a foreign land for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 
God is making his appeal to Generation Z, to Generation Alpha, through me, through you. Are you living this way as if he made you new? God didn't just fix you up. He made you brand new. I wasn't a bad person who needed to start doing good things. I was a dead person who needed to become alive. Jesus didn't ask me to perform for him some kind of miracle. I gave him rags and he made me brand new. The things I did in my past are a reality, but they don't define who I am today because of Jesus Christ, because of the finished work of Christ on that cross. My sins are paid for. I am forgiven. I am brand new. I am accepted in the sight of my heavenly Father. And, and, and that's who I want to live for. That's what I want to surrender my life to. Not somebody I have to perform for, but somebody who has made all things new. When I gave my life to Christ, it's because I was tired of me. And my prayer is that somebody in this room who's just tired of them and wants to stump into something brand new, that Christ right now, somebody who made you, who bought you, has greater plans for you, and he wants to change and transform you. And if you're Generation Z and you're Generation Alpha, we love you. God loves you. And I believe that you are going to change the world.